Hello and welcome to Tea Time Theology. I'm Ivy Swinsky. Today's guests that we will be talking to are Julia Rennell, Dwayne Key, and Mo Akande. And we'll be talking about the Black Lives Matter movement. So Julia, Mo, Dwayne, thank you all so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having us. Yes, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Of course. Um, Julia, do you want to start by just sort of telling us who you are? Sure. Um, so I am the exhibition manager and curator at the Center for Reconciliation in Providence. Um, and we are we were founded by the Episcopal Diocese of Rhode Island uh, and are in the process of becoming a ministry of the diocese, which is exciting. Um, but we are a nonprofit that focuses on racial justice and racial reconciliation by confronting the legacy of slavery. So um, much of what I do at the center is working on our programs, working on our exhibitions, and um, you know, really thinking about how best to foster education and dialogue around this topic. Wonderful. And Dwayne, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. So um, my vocation is I am a financial coach with a nonprofit called Compass Working Capital, and I provide financial coaching and counseling to families with low incomes, predominantly Black, Indigenous, and people of color, um, to help them build assets as well as financial capabilities. And a lot of our work um, helps both families get out of poverty and also supports closing the racial and gender wealth gaps that we see going on. Along with that, I serve in a number of volunteer roles, one of which is I am a member of the vestry for the Church of Redeemer on Oak Street with the Episcopal Diocese here in Rhode Island. And as a member of the vestry, I am leading or co-leading our racial reconciliation work um, at Redeemer, which we really launched and spearheaded um, in 2019. And we are just looking forward to continuing it in, in the years to come. That's amazing. Emma, do you want to just tell us a little bit about who you are as well? Yeah. Yeah. So my name is Mo Akande, and I am the music producer for the Tea Time Theology podcast. And Ivy graciously offered a co-moderating position today. So I'll be helping with that in our discussion. Definitely. Um, thank you all for introducing yourselves. Um, so let's just sort of like jump right in to the conversation. Uh, so what we obviously are talking about tonight is the Black Lives Matter movement as a whole. Let's start with like a very broad question and we can kind of see where we go from there. So that is what is happening right now? anyone wants to take it. I can make it a little clearer if anyone needs that. I, I guess I can start. Um, in <laughs> reflecting on this question, and I'm just thinking of our work at Redeemer, we call it racial reconciliation. I was reflecting on what reconciliation is, and I we saw a definition of the national church of reconciliation is the spiritual practice of seeking loving, liberating, and life-giving relationship with God and one another and striving to heal and transform injustice and brokenness in ourselves, our communities, institutions, and society. And as I'm thinking of, you know, the tragedy that we had witnessed, we've seen the tapes, we've seen all these things, but yet the 
the efforts of all of us, for many of us, to say, wait a minute, no, we that is not the world that we want to live in. That's not what we want to see. That's not what we want to have, particularly for Black people. And so I find that we're living that reconciliation right now as people are committing to healing and transforming uh, life as we've known it in America and throughout the world, uh, particularly when it comes to Black people and Black lives. Thank you for putting that so cogently and um, sharing that definition of reconciliation, because it is this ongoing cyclical work and addressing these cycles of violence that are really built in it throughout pretty much every institution in the U.S. Um, you know, I, I think what we're seeing right now is a kind of another bubbling up and manifestation of these issues that have been simmering in the in this country for the last 400 years of anti-black racism and um, structures predicated on anti-black racism and it is to me what's heartening right now and um, this isn't a unique perspective by any means but is how diverse um, the voices that are coming out against anti-black racism are at the moment and that you know we are kind of seeing across different racial ethnic backgrounds across different demographics folks coming out and actually starting to reckon with um, how they participate in the systems of racism we have in this country and um, so hopefully you know, people are starting to do this work of reconciliation in themselves as well, because that's a really critical um, component to this work and um, something that hopefully the work that Dwayne, you're doing with uh, Church of the Redeemer is contributing to and the work that the CFR is contributing to as well. Thank you both for those wonderful responses about what does it mean for reconciliation? I feel like that's kind of a word that churches throw around a lot. Um, without always uh, explaining what the definition is to it. Um, now you both are based in Providence and what are some ways that you see this reconciliation happening in the work that you are doing as well as in the communities that you both are serving? So um, <laughs> a lot of the work that the Center for Reconciliation does is really engaging people around the history of slavery and the slave trade in Providence in the, and in Rhode Island more generally and in New England in the hopes that, you know, that expands people's view of um, this legacy of slavery and how it impacts their lives even here in Rhode Island, here in New England. And the goal with that ultimately is to, you know, with that greater understanding of where we're coming from, we can come to a, a shared understanding of where we're going. So our programs tend to focus on both historical content and also um, more kind of dialogue around just different ideas around race and the history of race and how it was constructed and using those dialogues to kind of open up space for, for this reconciliation. It's interesting because as we, as Julia talked about how race was constructed, um, when I was speaking with Patrick, our rector last week about how we best move forward, we were talking about how do we develop a programs or activities or ways to deconstruct mm -hmm. race. 
And I think that's what we're approaching with. Um, before pre-COVID-19 impacted all of us, we had plans for doing workshops on cultural humility, implicit bias, how to see systems. When we talk about racism, sexism, classism, these systems had to be put in place, we were gonna have examples. And what we also found was, uh, whereas there were like Center for Reconciliation focusing on slavery and that history, that legacy, we were going to focus on other systems that have since occurred. Because we don't always talk about the 20th century systems. And particularly when we hear about redlining, housing segregation, particularly in Rhode Island, we wanted to really focus on the economic areas because we don't have that full legacy of Jim Crow in law, but we do have Jim Crow in custom. So we wanted to speak about that, talk about that. Um, we have now shifted and, uh, and adjusted to focus on anti-racist activities that our parishioners, who are predominantly white, how they can best support Black, Indigenous, and people of color in this work. What does it mean to use your privilege, white privilege, to support uh, people of color in this in this movement. Um, it's funny. I was just on a quick call with one of the neighborhood groups because I also lead a neighborhood association, which is in that predominantly black uh, lower middle class neighborhood in in the south side of Providence. And we were saying um, to that group, we had a message that we talked about about ending these systems, and they said they were all for. And I said, if you're willing to focus on the systemic and structural racism and forms of oppression and dismantling that so we all can have a high quality of life, then I'm all for it. So I think what is happening is it's forcing people, it's forcing people to have to, not to just address it, not just talk about it, but you now have to change what you have been doing or change what you had not been doing if that was silence in some cases to really uh, achieve that goal of deconstructing racism. How would you define being that sort of ally that you were talking about? How does someone be that positive ally to this movement, to that community? Especially, I know in Rhode Island, it it's not that it's harder, but it's not like we're openly having police officers murdering people in the streets or anything. It's like a little more in what you were talking about, the structures that are built. So how do you mm -hmm. be an ally in that sense? So a few uh, weeks ago, I actually put up this social media post in which I even said, you know, white, white people to my white friends, are you doing some of these basic things? Do you speak to your or call out or address your racist relatives at Thanksgiving and Christmas when you hear statements that are made? If you see something that is out of the ordinary, it, uh, I actually, another example was, um, do you, if it's sports and you see that there's a white referee that is, uh, has a call or make a decision that is blatantly uh, discriminatory against a black athlete, are you addressing that? Are you calling out the um, situation if you're shopping and you see racial profiling? Are you addressing that employee, that white employee who's racially profiling that black shopper? So it is in that way also saying, no, that's wrong. Also supporting that person of color, also using your stuff to say, wait a minute, I'm going to make that call. I'm going to, uh, you know, check and say that that's unacceptable for me as a white person that you treat that other person differently, you know, negatively or differently. So it is those basic living things 
while at the same time, then how do we take that into the workplace? So when you see that your white colleague has done something which you know is a microaggression against your black colleague, are you then taking that white colleague aside and letting them know that that what they did was wrong, inappropriate, and don't let it happen again? Um, <laughs> so it is it is really changing how you as would live your life um, in terms of addressing that systemic racism, those actions that people may even see as harmless. I've heard this term polite racism or respectful racism. I'm like, there's no such thing. Racism is racism, period. And it needs to be addressed in all forms. That's interesting, Dwayne. This is Mo. And I was wondering maybe what your thoughts are, Julia's thoughts, if a person is not, is not even far along enough to be able to see those things and recognize them as racism. How do they even begin the process of self-reflection and also like worldly reflection in identifying racism? Certainly. Um, so I think, you know, we're fortunate in 2020 because there are a lot of incredible resources at the moment um, that have been created both by white people and by people of color. Um, you know, and I, I think it's really important for white people to take a look at those resources before going to the people of color in their lives and asking them to do that work for them. So one really, I mean, it's an old essay, but it's still fantastic, um, a really helpful kind of diagnosis of what white privilege is and good tool to kind of start working through that. It's called White Privilege Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack by Peggy McIntosh. Um, Robin D'Angelo, who is a professor and anti-racism educator, recently came out with a book in 2018 called White Fragility. Um, that can be very helpful, but I think, you know, a lot of the work is kind of First of all, you know, Dwayne mentioned the term cultural humility and just this concept of humility, the idea that, um, you know, this work is never going to be done. And as a white person, you are living and breathing uh, systemic racism and white supremacy every single day. And um, to learn to, um, as Dwayne was saying, where you can shift those dialogues and become more self-aware within yourself and also in your in your interactions with other people. Um, you know, in doing that work with white people in your lives, because I think from my perspective as a white woman, I think some of the places that uh, white people can have most impact is with other white people. And so being, and being conscious of, you know, kind of going back to the idea of what you're asking the people of color in your life, being conscious of, you know, what emotional labor you're asking them to perform. Um, you know, when they, when do they actually want to talk to you about issues they're experiencing? And when is that just something that's serving you? So I think um, the more self-reflection, <laughs> the better, honestly. And, you know, that could be you're finding an accountability partner. It could be journaling. Um, ongoing reading. I think it's shifting your media diet as well. You know, um, really trying to ed, trying to seek out books, podcasts, movies, TV shows that are you know coming from a black perspective with um, black narratives. And yeah, those are some just some thoughts. <laughs> I would also yeah. like to add on. Uh, I'm sorry. No, um, please go ahead. 
I was going to say adding on to that, just in terms of that person in, in, in that self-reflection, I similarly had to go through that with sexism and coming to a realization that I have male privilege and that I realized that there were things in the past that I did or did not say or do. And oh my God, so coming to that realization, I would say prepare for yourself to forgive yourself um, <laughs> um, and, and once you have forgiven yourself, commit to being conscious, being aware so that when you're encountering those future situations, how do you best respond and recognizing that you have a privilege and, and realizing, okay, privilege is not all you have this great life. What it is, is that because of this characteristic of yours, there are things in life that you do not have to worry about in terms of living. Um, and so just as I came to that realization of being a cisgendered man, um, I would say that's the same thing that white people need to come to the realization of. And with forgiving yourself, being able to move forward and consciously say, okay, going forward, how do I take and utilize that privilege to uh, and to help people support people of color and also like to help white people just like I had to talk to other men about sexism we need white people to talk to other white people about racism <laughs> totally I was also going to latch on to that self-reflection part because I feel like as a black woman who has many white friends where I'm their only black friend kind of in this period of time so many of my white friends have been reaching out asking me, what can I do? And the first, you know, week or maybe two weeks, I just was like shut down. I was like, please stop asking me that. Like you, there's so much out there. You can go seek that out. And then after some time that I was able to process, okay, what's going on in the world? Like all these parts of my identity are under attack and I could kind of digest that a little bit. Then I started coming back with like, actually what you can do is reflect on your personal biases. You can reflect on the world that you have built around you and that has been built around you and recognize where you benefit and why. And doing that kind of work, it kind of goes back to what you said right at the beginning, Dwayne, in defining reconciliation that the word spiritual is in that definition. And that's something that I felt that at least in my circles, there's been a lack of this spiritual component that calls for more self-reflection and more um, contemplation about these systems that I think can be a really powerful tool in actually making these changes that are happening have a long lasting effect. I agree. I agree. And yes, when it comes to, you know, I had certainly my white friends ask me and I'm like, you know, what? I'm tired. You know, so I'm worn out. It's draining exactly. me in this. It can be draining to be in this skin, particularly as a dark complected black man. So then on top of that, now you want me to teach you about what you should do. And I'm like somebody mm -hmm. else. So <laughs> I'm like, I the whole it. point of the hashtag is you can type it in and read. So please yes. <laughs> just look up what's trending. Mm -hmm. There's actually like an essay that someone wrote about why I'm no longer talking to white people about race. And it like deals with that same sort of issues as well. Mm -hmm. Yes. And, you know, I think, I mean, like Dwayne is saying, Mo is saying, I mean, I think 
going to your points about, you know, the, the work you have to do yourself, I think white people also feel often paralyzed by guilt in this topic and, and afraid to say the wrong thing. And, you know, I think um, kind of coming back to humility and self-reflection and also, um, you know, just, just trying and being comfortable with um, being on your own journey. And hopefully you're not doing anything that, and, and obviously minimizing harm um, and trying, coming from a place of non-harming, but um, not letting your guilt and your fear prevent you from taking steps, I think is really important. Right. And I think that fear can be so real because a lot of times, you know, a white person may try speaking out and, you know, there's a, there's a trial and error period where you say something that you think is woke or on point, and then you get a lot of backlash and that can scare you into that fragility. And so I'm wondering too, like, even in my own struggle, I ended up feeling bad for basically how I responded to my white friends, like, please leave me alone. Stop asking me what you can do. Uh, is, do you guys have advice or, or tactics for how people of color who are approached by white people, like, when we have the capacity, how do we deal with that without so much anger, without scaring off potential allies and people who are in these positions of privilege and power that can also help with change? I have to say, I'm still in that learning stage too, because I'm finding, I'm having to put that professor's hat on about these legacies, not just of slavery, because someone will say, you know, that was so long ago, I wasn't there. And then you're having to educate them about Jim Crow and redlining and economic discrimination. You know, we hear about the GI Bill and you have to tell some folks that your grandparents got that and my grandparents did not. They were purposely excluded that. Um, when you talk about the redlining and the fact that people realize, you know, I pulled myself up from that, my bootstraps um, you hear about that, you know, my grandfather worked, he did everything, and you're now having to educate them that, no, your grandfather got a handout, got some assistance. So I would say um, I, it's be prepared to, um, I would say, set them up and say, you're, you, I'm going to give you some information, but just know that this information is going to shock everything that you thought was to be real or true for the last couple of years, like your whole family history right now and what you thought was to, to be how you were successful or how you came to where you are, that's about to be dispelled right now. In other words, um, I, I have said to my, you know, my white friends, like, I'm, just to know, I'm about to dispel your whole reality that you thought of it or that you <laughs> thought it was about to be. So, you know, be prepared, like, don't get, I don't, don't get mad because I'm telling you right now, so what I'm about to share with you, how you're going to be educated is going to shatter this American dream that you knew it to be. Um, right. One. Um, <laughs> um, that usually has prepared a lot of them to say, okay, I know I'm about to hear some stuff from Dwayne. I know it's going to be intense. <laughs> Um, I'm not gonna, therefore, I'm not gonna be upset or act as shocked because he did tell me that it's going to be shocking. 
So really, I have set that expectation um, from the beginning as a way of just getting out of the way and then, you know, taking that his, you know, taking that uh, information as you go forward. And everyone's different. There are some people who need to be alone to process. There are some people who want to talk and engage more. And I kind of go with that individual person of what, what do they need in terms of being able to receive what they are now learning about the true reality of living in the United States? Yeah, that's good advice. You you named a few things, Dwayne, and maybe, you know, Julia, since you at the CFR focus a lot more on history of race. Also, I feel like as a person of color, like I just, I don't know everything. Like I, if I knew all the ways I was being oppressed, like I would feel better equipped to try to overcome that. So when I'm pointing people in the direction, like, you know, we've named some essays and some books, but like, what are some like, where do, do we start in understanding how we've been oppressed too and how to point people in the right direction of like, look at these things. Mm-hmm. So there, yes, there, there are a lot of amazing resources coming out all the time. I mean, and I think different ones, different approaches speak to different people. I think some people really resonate with more personal essays. So, you know, that could be the work of, or like cultural criticism. So like James Baldwin, ta Coates, some people really connect with poetry. That could be Audre Lorde, you know, if you want like more of a historical view. Um, you know, a lot of people are talking about Ibram X. Kendi's work right now. Um, the CFR has done book clubs on both of, I guess he has three books. We've done a book club on stamp from the beginning, uh, the definitive history of racist ideas in America. And so I think that's a pretty you know, if, if you know the person in your life is up for reading hundreds and hundreds of pages, um, you can refer them to that. But there are also, you know, and if people want Rhode Island specific resources as well, um, there's a great book called Dark Work, The Business of Slavery by Christy Clark Pujara. Um, but then also, I think sometimes, um, you know, podcasts can be great too. Um, just people starting to kind of like, dip their toe in. I, I listen to Still Processing, the New York Times podcast with Jenna Wortham and Wesley Morris. Um, there's NPR's Code Switch. I'm sure all these things folks are familiar with, you know, but um, just kind of thinking about what might land with someone. Um, and I think also, I mean, in terms of fielding those overtures, I mean, I can only really speak to that as from my perspective as a white woman, I, I know sometimes when I um, get overtures that I know are well-intentioned, but that I don't particularly want to engage with at that time. Um, you know, I think it's legitimate to say like, thank you so much for reaching out. Like, honestly, I'm taking care of, trying to take care of myself right now. And that means that I'm not available to really talk about this in an extensive way, but, um, you know, it means a lot to me that you're here to talk about it. Um, you know, if that changes and in the meantime, let me point you to these resources, you know, and I, I would hope that if somebody really is trying to connect with you genuinely person to person that they would hear that. I know sometimes it isn't that easy, but I, I think it's totally okay to um, really reinforce for someone that, um, you know, taking care of yourself is your priority as it should be. And 
And I definitely, um, to your point about how do you talk with other Black, Indigenous, and people of color about racism and having them recognize when there's issues that are racist, um, you know, it's taking certain specific incidents that they can relate to that are maybe occurring now and also talking it through and giving them, also sharing with them terms, definitions that kind of explain that. I'll give one example. This was last year when it came to issues of property tax and, and, and providence. And one side of town, which is historically wealthier white, was not going to be impacted and negatively, as was the other parts of the city, which are predominantly people of color. And in that discussion, I had made a statement of that being a racist policy. And one person who's a particular people, person of color, Dominican, was like, well, how is that possible? And so I had to explain to him the term disparate impact. And so he had never heard of that term before, but explaining that, you know, if you have a system or something that is supposedly race neutral, but yet it has a negative adverse impact on people of color, that is racist. And so I had to explain to him the system that you set in place, it is set up to benefit white people because look at what's happening right now. So giving him that language and explaining to him that policy is like, you have this thing, which is, it's not intentional. They're not intentionally trying to put black and brown people down, but that's what's happening. And so we need to say that. So I think that from our end, having those kind of conversations with other um, black and brown folks and also clearing up and bringing up there is internal racism <laughs> we have to admit it racism is not just white people towards black people and other people people of color but we can also be racist to each other because we have a system that reinforces that those biases stereotypes that prejudice against each other and so really educating them on what a system of oppression is um takes some time um, and, and, and that's really what it is, is really focusing on that. But having those brave conversations, taking something as simple as the Providence Public Schools, <laughs> a, a real life experience, they can see that through, through, through and through. <laughs> so I wanna actually go back to something that Mo said kind of quickly and we moved past it into that wonderful conversation that we can head back to it now, but this idea of the spiritual work that we also need to do around this. Um, and also, where do we think the church's role is in um, these systems? There's like, the church is like an OG system, <laughs> um, as well as the church's role in these systems of oppression. Yes. So, you know, as I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, um, the Center for Reconciliation was founded by the Episcopal Diocese of Rhode Island and um, in 2015. And that was coming out of at least a decade um, of conversation within the National Episcopal Church, as well as the Rhode Island Diocese around the church's historical participation in and profit from um, slavery and the slave trade and really starting to reckon with that and think about what it would mean to address that history and acknowledge it and um, move towards reconciliation. So, and I believe in um, 2006, the Episcopal National Convention resolved to acknowledge this history um, and apologize for it and start to work towards healing and reconciliation. So, 
in Rhode Island specifically, um, don't know how familiar everyone listening is with Rhode Island's historic connections with the slave trade, but um, 60% of the North American slave trade was um, run by Rhode Islanders. You know, we're, we're a very small state in terms of landmass, but we have the, you know, off talked about 400 miles of coastline. So that meant um, that colonial Rhode Island, white Rhode Island merchants were involved in every kind of oceanfront trade, including the highest risk and also highest reward trade, which was the trade in enslaved Africans. So, um, and many of the, the, the Episcopal church, many people in the church, you know, both parishioners and people at um, high level positions of power in the church were um, profiting from and participating in the slave trade and also um, owning enslaved people. So really as part of, you know, starting to reckon with this history, um, the Center for Reconciliation was founded. And, you know, I think for that reason and also for the reason that there is a real and profound spiritual dimension to this work, it's a natural home for this work. Um, you know, many of the themes that we, that come up around this work and the work that comes up in the work um, is do have kind of greater philosophical and spiritual implications and are hard to deal with on levels that are really just intellectual and um, you know kind of practical you know the concepts of mercy the concepts of faith the concept of reconciliation the concept of transformative love um, all of these are concepts that have really been threaded through um, all kind of forms of Christianity in the U.S. and also um, the struggle for the Black freedom struggle and the civil rights movement. You know, it, it's no accident that many of our greatest civil rights leaders are also um, faith leaders. So I think, um, you know, the churches, I'm, I'm very lucky personally and happy personally that the church is uh, doing this work, the Episcopal Diocese is, um, because there's a lot of work to be done and um, yeah, I'm glad to be participating in it. Um, so one of the things when we, um, when our vestry had reaffirmed our commitment to racial reconciliation, um, before we went ahead and said we were gonna do some workshops, do some sessions, we're gonna do what it is, we decided to understand where our parish was at that moment. And so we did do a listening session, not so much of is this work important? It was, how do you want to receive it? Do you want to have books or podcasts or readings or discussion? Like, what does that look like to you? And although no one had a specific way, the one common theme was, I don't want it to be like academic or like we do a policy or a statement. We just put it on a piece of paper and sit there. They wanted to have very transformative um conversations our congregation wanted wants to have these very brave conversations which i found to be very striking because normally it's the opposite of like i'm you're, i'm in there encountering white people who don't want to go there and so that was very inspiring um and speaking with my uh rector what we have learned is that uh, you know our um, parish was the only one really focusing on that work. And so, although that was great in a sense that we are, we're the pioneers, 
I like that was also disheartening that we're the only pioneers. So our discussion was, okay, how do we influence or inspire other parishes in the diocese to take that same step, that lead? And what I was very pleased to hear is that there are other parishes that are now, because of what is happening, saying we have a role in this. We don't quite know exactly what it is that we should or should not do, but they recognize and are saying we have to do something. So I think that that is the, the next step is that getting them to make that commitment to go on this brave journey of reconciliation, of dismantling racism. Um, it, but I think it's still, I don't know if I say it's too early, but I think we're still not at that point of, well, what does that mean for um, the diocese as a whole, as well as, you know, individual, you know, Episcopal church, but in churches in general? You know, what is their role in this? And I've heard some historical churches in other states, they're like, we're gonna do um, reparations for our role in the slave trade. Um, some are doing a scholarship fund, some are doing um, in terms of monetary um, aspects. And obviously we look at the Center of Reconciliation, which was the main cathedral. And now that is that museum and commitments and work. So there are just so many different ideas that I think we can, find ourselves doing to fulfill this, this work. Um, but I think that first step in commitment is, is really being open saying you want to do this work that is, uh, that is necessary to um, achieve that reconciliation. Wonderful, thank you both for those wonderful statements. And thank you, Julia, for that history lesson that I don't know if everyone knows. In that idea of where's the church in this, um, where is God in all of this? This is a, it's called Tea Time Theology um, the podcast. So where is God in what is happening now, currently, and what has happened in the past? God is present in all this. Um, I think I'm just thinking about the book of Job and how we think of all the things that were happening to Job and Job never cursed God. He never uh, turned away from God, but he did have this question of why, you know, wondering why this is going on, what was happening, why is it this way? And, and I'm just reminded that when God came through and spoke, he never answered Job's question. He never said, this is what I'm doing. He never explained himself. What he did was kind of just put it out there that you know nothing about the universe about all that I know and all my infinite wisdom. And so I'm reminded of that things are happening for a reason. We don't always know. We can look towards the outcomes, but I definitely am very certain and just reflect on that God is present just as God was present in, in throughout, you know, our history and in that, in those set of scriptures. Um, God doesn't always, you know, make things happen, but God does allow things to happen. And I think this is one of those moments that God has allowed this to happen as a way of us being able to come to this place and really forcing us to really look at ourselves and are, are we the Christians that we say that we are? Because if we are, this is what we need to do. Um, so I, I find that God is right here, but I don't always know exactly what God is up to, but I'm trusting that I'm just going to trust that God, I'm just going to follow what God has told me to do and it's going to work out. <laughs> I think God or, you know, however, the idea of God manifests in your life. I think 
for me, it's, you know, God is wherever you're seeking towards a love that encompasses all on the planet. And it's wherever um, it's a seeking towards kind of um, opening yourself and being brave and being curious and moving towards connection with other people um, and moving towards reconciliation. So I, I think all of that work is, is the work of God or a higher power or, you know, however you connect to that greater sense of transcendence and divinity in your life. Yeah, I was going to say the same thing that for me, God, I think God played a role in me softening towards my white friends and being able to process, you know, the first few weeks of all the the outrage and the protest and be able to find my inner strength again to remember that in reconciliation, you know, it's moving together and trying to move toward each other instead of away. And so I think God played a role in reminding me of that. Thank you all for that. And I agree. I love you bringing up um, Job, Dwayne. I really um, love that book. And I think that that's such a great way to think about this as a whole. I haven't haven't heard anyone make that connection yet so I I really appreciate um that I want to be conscious of time um so I'd love to give you both a minute to plug your organizations you both talked at the beginning about a multitude of organizations that you both work with and for and volunteer with so I'd love you can plug and any way that we can be helpful if being helpful is showing up for an event or being helpful is writing a check. Please be honest. <laughs> yes, um, so all are welcome at the Center for Reconciliation. Uh, we're currently, you know, in, in these pandemic times, we're shifted to all digital programs and exhibitions. So really encourage everyone to visit our website. We're at cfrri.org. And um, up there right now, we have a digital exhibition uh, that we're presenting in partnership with the Center for the Study of Slavery and Justice at Brown, who curated the exhibition. Um, but it's called Unfinished Business, the Long Civil Rights Movement. So very timely talking about thinking about the civil rights movement as really a movement of ordinary people, you know, stretching from emancipation, the exhibition covers through Jesse Jackson's presidential campaign. Um, and we're also having digital programs. We're having a virtual vigil for ju racial justice, peace, and reconciliation on Thursday, June 18th at 5 p.m., um, hosted through Zoom. And Bishop Nisley um, of the Episcopal Diocese is hosting it, but we're having um, Imam Farid Ansari, Rabbi Sarah Mack, um, Jim Vincent, who's the president of the NAACP here in Providence, as well as Reverend uh, Bishop Jeffrey Williams um, also join us for that. So everyone's welcome to come and please sign up for a newsletter. That's the best way to stay informed. And you can do that on our website and also follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. It's me behind the curtain. So <laughs> I'm always happy to um, engage with people there. And 
yes, donations are always welcome. So you can also donate on our website as well. Um, and happy to connect with everyone. And yes, um, Church of the Redeemer on Hope Street in Providence, our website, redeemerprovidence.org. Um, just as Julia said, with the impacts of COVID-19, we're not having in-person gatherings. Um, we are streaming our services online through Facebook Live on Sundays. Um, we've had a number of people across the country, as well as here in Providence, our regular parishioners um, that are viewing our services, seeing our rector, Dr. Campbell. Um, even in this work right now, we are talking about with, along with sharing some recent resources about maybe doing some sort of book club discussion on how to be an anti-racist. Um, we were in the process during Lent of reading The Death of Race, Building a New Christianity in a Racial World by Brian Batsums. We hope to continue that once we can start to gather in person again. Um, and again, doing those workshops that we did have planned for racial reconciliation and moving forward, along with having other parishes join us too. Yes, like any other organization, we welcome donations. We welcome our tithes um, to continue on our work um, that we're doing and be sustaining. So yes, anyone who wants to join or who wants to donate, they can definitely look up the information on our website, Church of the Redeemer. Great, thank you both for that. Um, and as we kind of wrap up, is there any final thoughts that anyone has? Anything that you would like to add? Um, I guess I just, you know, encourage everyone to, um, as we've been talking about, take this time for reflection and also nourishment of yourself. You know, um, I think depending on um, what position, you, what body you live in and what position you inhabit in this world, the stressors are different, you know, but it is a really stressful time. And you know, I encourage everyone to just take care of themselves and also, but also not, you know, shut the door to that work of kind of that internal work and that internal discernment and being brave and being curious. And I would also just echo those sentiments. Self-care is very important. Um, I always say um, this is ongoing work. Um, we need to be bold, but we also need to be patient. Um, and understand that transformation is just like that. It transforms, it changes, it changes daily. Um, and so I just, uh, call, you know, just urge everyone to just be ready, be bold, be brave, be ready to move forward, but also be willing to be patient and also take the time that you need um, as we move forward with reconciliation. Mo, do you have anything you'd like to add. I just want to thank our guests and thank you, Ivy, for, um, you know, moderating or co-moderating with me. And thanks to Taylor, who initially had the idea to do this bonus episode. And um, thanks to everyone for listening. <laughs> yeah, thank you all so much. Thank you so much for having me. Um, and for focusing this episode on Black Lives Matter and inviting the Center for Reconciliation to be a part of it. Um, we're so glad to be here and so glad to um, be connecting with everyone that's in this work. Yes, thank you all so very much. <laughs> thank you for listening to Tea Time Theology. We would like to thank our sponsor, the Episcopal Diocese of Rhode Island, 
and the Right Reverend Nicholas Nisley, as well as our guests today. You can follow us at Tea Time Theology on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. This season of Tea Time Theology is hosted and organized by Ivy Swinsky. Our music is mixed and performed by Morayo Akande. The podcast is recorded and edited by me, Taylor Wilkie. There is a bomb in Gilead to make the wounded whole. There is a bomb in Gilead to heal the sin-sick Sometimes I feel discouraged and think my work's in vain. But then the Holy Spirit revives my soul again. Thank mm-hmm. you.